I don't know how your week was, but I had a week that every time I came back to this passage, there was something else in the larger context of my life that was coming out. It's one of those passages that for me this week was just so exciting to be a part of. Um, a lot of you know, it's no surprise, that I dabble in Facebook. The Alumni Association of Covenant Theological Seminary had a lively discussion about worship and the regulative principle last night. And that's why I'm glad I got to lead today because I love worship services. I love creating them. And this passage is about worship because when we come down, we're going to look at what does it mean to kiss the ring at the end because you've got these, these three phases of the psalm that the nations raves, that heaven laughs, kiss the sun. I mean, those are all very vivid images that the psalmist gives us. And I, as I read it today on the second of the month, I, I said, is this the psalm I would have picked for the second psalm to give everybody? You know, you think about Psalm 1, yeah, you can get into that. That's, you know, we say that's, that's, that really fits. But you come to the second, why do the nations rage? And then when you go through it and you see the nations and all of that, you go, oh my goodness, this is a covenantal psalm. This is a psalm about the nations that goes back to Genesis 12 when all the nations and the families of the nations are going to be blessed. Remember that? When we go forward, when we think about nations, we go forward to Jesus' word, sending his disciples out to all the nations. We go to John in the book of Revelation, and he shows us heaven with people from every language and nation and tribe in heaven. So, it's appropriate to ask, why do the nations rage? In the relationship between... Um, the church and the state, the government and the, and the church is something that's been going on before the pharaohs. But I picked three points in, within British history because of a blog that I read this week. So you can look at three points in English history, British history. You have got Henry II versus Archbishop Thomas Becket at Canterbury. <laughs> Becket dies, but Becket wins. You can still get the blood-tinged water of Becket for healing at Canterbury. Come along to Henry VIII, and Henry VIII isn't you know, he's not just killing folks. He's taking over property. He's bringing down buildings. He becomes the head of the church. And then into Scottish history, and it's hard to believe that this date is so recent in terms of the big swings in history. You have the disruption in Scotland of, in 1844 when the free church says the government shouldn't run the church. And they leave everything. Go worship outside no matter what the Scottish weather is.
But you see the nations raging against the church. You see the nations raging against the stands of the church, the moral commitments of the church, the the idea that Jesus is the only way of salvation. One of the things that this psalm does, when it talks about the nations raging, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, See, God is involved in the world that we live in on a global scale. So often, sometimes we just think, well, he's just involved in my church, in my community, in my life. No. It's global. It's international. And he raises the question, do these nations support him or are they against him? And he begins in verse 2 of Psalm 2 in the Psalms to bring up this issue. The latter part of verse 2, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now we're going to come back to that in the latter part of the psalm. But you have this idea that There is something going on with God as he relates to the world. See, that's one of the things that that Advent is all about, is telling people that God is involved in the world that we're at. And there are so many ways of organizing Advent or whatever, but we need to say to the world that God is still at work in the world that he created. And the nations can rage. Then you come to verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, I've always thought that that was, I mean, laughing seems funny, and it seems that God laughs, that's funny. That that he looks down, and with derision, he looks down and says, you've got to be kidding, you think you're in charge? He laughs at the world. Because of their arrogance, because of their insolence, because they don't recognize him, he laughs at them. Now, I'll I'll be honest, and, and I know I have to be very careful in what I say. All I will say is with the international news about countries and nations and rulers that's going on now, God, I think, is getting a good laugh. Because he says, you have got to be kidding. See, the Lord holds them in derision. People build up their empires, they build up their countries, they build up their brands, they build up all kinds of things, and they say, look at me! But they leave God out. And he looks at them in derision. It's like we have a a peek behind the curtain. We have a peek into heaven through revelation. Verse 5 to me is scary. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, we, we get a look into what the world, what the gospel does to the world, how we live, that, that the king really is on the holy hill. See, sometimes I think we think that he's left, that he's gone, that he hasn't gotten there, or whatever. But do, do you hear the words that are chosen? He will speak to them in his wrath. That there are times when we experience his wrath in this nation and terrify them in his fury. See, I think sometimes when some of the horrible things happen in this world, we don't see God's hand because maybe we're not supposed to see his hand, but we know that he can do things. I think about people in Pensacola, Florida, at the Naval Air Station there, where there were two shootings this week. Not one, but two. You see the disruption. You see the division. And we have to ask ourselves, because let me tell you that, that the news, the exposure to all this stuff through social media, through the newspapers and television and Facebook and everything that we get news by can make people feel insecure. But if you really believe what it says in verse 6, as for me, meaning the Lord, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is in charge of the world? In spite of the fury of the sin and rebellion that's going on. Do you see how you can have both? You can have sin and destruction along with the rule of Christ. Because we haven't gotten there yet. So sometimes when you get depressed by the news, remember that God laughs. Then we come down to this last point. Kiss the sun. Verse 7 says, I will tell you the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. This relationship between the Father and the Son within the Trinity gets more information out there for us. The Lord said to me, you are my Son today, I have begotten you. Now, listen to the covenantal language that is used here. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Do you hear Genesis 12 and Matthew 28 language in there. You see, we can have the language of promise, we can have the language of the covenant, the language of God, without quoting something else, and we can bring those together. You think about all the organizations that want to organize the nations, and verse 8 says, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's where history is going. 
in spite of all the confusion, in spite of all the things that seem to go wrong. You shall break them with an iron rod. Now this last part, this is, this is very vivid because we've all seen this happen. Dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I mean, we've all seen broken china, right? Some of you may even have thrown china to break it. Or as you've watched your child grab something and break it. It's a very vivid image, isn't it? To think that the dreams of people can be shattered like pottery. But notice God's grace at the end in 10, 11, and 12. Because in spite of all this warning about the rage of the nations and the rebellion and their disregard for God, listen to what God says. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Do you hear the warning? Do you hear that God is reaching out and saying, hey, things are going to change. I'm in charge. Be warned, be wise. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. See, we look at that and we wonder, okay, how can I serve him with fear and then rejoice? But we have these tensions in our relationship with God that I stand in awe before God, but I rejoice that I'm standing in with God. That he is the creator, that his son is the ruler of the nations. Rejoice with trembling. See, sometimes I read a verse like that and it, it, it bothers me that I'm not a very emotional person. I don't tremble in worship. I know people that do. I know people who, when they worship, their whole body is just involved. But then we come to this phrase. Kiss the sun. In a lot of fantasy movies and, and movies, you know, the, you have to bend the knee to the king or the queen. You've got to bend the knee. How many times in historical things do you see in movies that the king or the bishop or the pope will put out his hand so you can kiss his ring? Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Think about what a kiss represents in a formal relationship to the anointed, to the one who is the son of God. Now, it doesn't tell us whether this meant, and we can't tell from the context of the history of when this was written, whether it was like kiss the ring or kiss each cheek, it doesn't say that. But kissing is an intimate expression. And when you do it to a sovereign, it is an acknowledgement that you can approach the sovereign and still be 
relatively intimate in a formal way as you show your submission. I mean, now I have limited exposure. Although I do follow the crown. But I've never seen anybody in public ever kiss the queen. Jesus says, come and kiss me. Come and kiss me. I've told you about my sermon in seminary that I was assigned because we were given these sermons for short texts. And the professor who knew me very well, I think in a very sly way, said, okay, Fred, I want you to preach on greet one another with a holy kiss. Is that normative today? For another day. But yet in the early church, that kissing of each other represented their union with Christ, that a slave would kiss a master, that a master would kiss a slave, that a man would kiss a woman who was not his wife, that they greeted each other in Christ with a kiss. And I think that comes from this passage here. To greet one another with a holy kiss. To kiss the Son in both submission and in love. But he, he, he qualifies it, doesn't it? If you don't kiss him, he's going to be angry and you're going to perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. That's like, whoa. You have this opportunity of intimacy that is followed by, if you don't take him up on that, he'll be angry and you could perish in the way. But notice how Psalm, 12, Psalm 2 ends up in verse 12, the end of 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, I love that word refuge. I love that word refuge because we have so many people, whether they are lonely old people, whether they're lonely young people, whether they're people that struggle with suicide or addictions or anything else that's going on, he's a refuge. That's what people need. That's what the church is to be. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That means I need to admit I need to go to a place of refuge. That I can't handle life on my own. That I need a place of refuge. The church needs to be a place of refuge. Now one of the things that happens when we become a place of refuge is it's like you can never tell who God is going to send along your way. And it's going to be messy. I don't think I've told this story recently, so I'm going to tell it again. We had a friend who was a pastor who had a small church out in the country, further out in the country than we were. A bunch of women got together to pray that God would bring them people to their church.
And all of a sudden, the people, the families that show up, weren't what they were quite looking for. Because in that little country community, we went to a prayer meeting one night. 23 children were living with grandparents because both parents were in prison for drugs. Do you want to talk about an intensely heavy, take care of each other, try to figure out how not to have that next generation follow the pipeline from drug families to prison? That the grandparents are there, they're bringing the kids, the kids come to Sunday school, you have this opportunity to share the gospel, to teach them their memorized Bibles, verses to sing songs, to put the kindling for the Holy Spirit at some point in their lives, to grab a hold of them, light up the memories, and bring them to Christ. See, we're supposed to be a refuge, it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, I want to close with a story that I hope I can finish. A friend of ours, Celeste and mine, a guy named Brent, who was an elder in the church that we came from, Resurrection in Athens. Brent was an unusual guy because he had a double major. He was an English major. He was a computer science major. He made his money programming, but could really write. Brent died this fall, and his daughter, who can write, published kind of a last blog entry. He says, I take very seriously the Christian tenet that all of my life no longer belongs to me, but instead belongs fully to Christ, and as such should be devoted to serving him. See, he had made that commitment long before he started battling cancer for five years. That he belonged to Christ. That he had kissed the ring. I'm feeling better and looking forward to Christmas with family. He died in October. Never had the Christmas. The wife and the family will be dearly loved by the church but not by their dad and husband. It is all at that point that I'm going to be convinced that the bad news that I received in Nashville and in Houston, those are the big cancer hospitals he would go to, was just God shutting doors until I opened the one that kept me at home with my family. So he understood at that point that all these medical things, all these things, he had come to the end of science helping him. And now I'm going to be home with my family. Even if every person in the world were to pray on my behalf for a good outcome from the upcoming treatment, God can still say no. 
This, of course, sounds bad, but has no bearing on God's character, particularly his goodness. And this is what I want you to remember. I confess that I am still learning to accept and to trust him in this after five years with cancer. But my security is in God asking his own son to die on the cross with a promise to bring him back from the dead and then being true to his word on the third day when Jesus was resurrected. See, I don't know why you might need to take refuge, what your practical situation this week is or today, what you're going to need on Monday, but God is a refuge. He is there for whatever it brings, whatever surprises you might have, whatever things that come around the corner or come up over the hill. And I tell you, driving on Scottish single track roads, you learn that you can never tell what's around the corner or what's coming over the hill. And so that's the way life often is. But he's our refuge. Kiss the sun. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can have that intimacy with the sovereign who is over the nations, but yet who comes down to be your refuge. So my challenge for you this week, as you think about Psalm 2, as you read on it and maybe pray over it, as you think about what God has for you, that whatever the surprises are, that you will know that he is on his throne, he is on the holy hill in his city. And if you have kissed him through faith, that you can be blessed and have refuge in him. If you feel alone, if you feel scattered, if you feel unprotected, insecure, remember he is your refuge. Hear those words. Don't allow your pain to shout, to cut them out. Because sometimes we think, oh, it's me, it's my pain, it's I'm peculiar, I'm unique, and it doesn't apply to me. No, it does apply to you. Hear the words, blessed are all who take refuge in him. I want to offer that to you. Whatever your situation is, I want to offer that to you. Because the king on the hill in the city is the one who gives you refuge. Let us pray. Father, we know that your word's true. And we pray in whatever crisis where we need you for refuge, we would hear that offer of refuge. We would not be insecure. We would not be lonely. We would not be afraid. Because you promised to bless us in a refuge. And so, Father, I just ask that your words would be in our hearts this week. 
be in our minds, be in our memories as we faced the curves and hills of life. As we face the uncertainty, as we look at the uncertainty of the world that we live in, both politically and economically and all the other things that go on, that we can know that we are blessed because we have refuge in you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.